Hello, everyone. Welcome to another ATC Double Cut. I am pleased to have as a guest on this episode, Eric Johnson, who in his email signature now says regional agronomist for the West region and director of Agronomy Chambers Bay. Eric, welcome to ATC Office Hours. And may you clarify for us, the regional agronomist, I assume that's for Kemper Sports. Is that right? Yeah, it is Kemper Sports. Yeah, that's correct. Well, congratulations. Region, not a lot of properties. <laughs> Good. <laughs> so uh, thank you for joining me so early this morning. This is a time that works great for me. And um, we apparently works good for you at uh, four o'clock in the morning your time so that's wonderful that may be a bit of advice for young greenkeepers <laughs> <laughs> so yeah it's a it's a good habit bad habit maybe i don't know yeah so it's you told me you've been doing this for a long time um for anybody who doesn't know eric johnson and i both went to oregon state university to get our horticulture degrees uh, with a specialization in turf grass management and we both happened to be there uh, it, it i think my career at oregon state overlapped with yours for at least two years yeah, um, yeah. I, I believe uh, so we were there in the early to mid to late 90s and eric went on to spyglass hill uh and then to bandon dunes and then uh to chambers bay so you've been at some iconic properties on the west coast and we've known each other for a long time now so yeah. I, i'm so happy to have you on the show because i wanted to talk about playability and about how you use some of the techniques practically that i talk about sometimes scientifically or with charts and numbers the stuff like clipping volume and mlsn and om246 that i know you use all of these to some extent and you also um are producing surfaces for uh, a municipal facility, I understand. Is that is that a proper yeah. description of the business operation of Chambers Bay? Yeah, uh, Pierce County owns Chambers Bay and, and the surrounding park property. And uh, Kemper Sports manages for Pierce County. And so it's, it's a Pierce County operation or owned property that also hosts nas national championships such as the u.s women's amateur in 2022 and the united states men's open in 2015 and uh some state events also some yeah we, we have uh well we had the 2021 men's usga men's four ball mm -hmm. and we have had at least two Pacific Coast amateurs. Uh, we have a a college tournament that's uh, Seattle University hosts every year and brings in about sixteen to twenty teams. And and we brought on the Seattle U Women's, what they call it, the Red Hawk Invitational and the Chambers Bay Invitational. So it's it's those are kind of set in stone at this point. It's a pretty popular event. Not the greatest time of year to have it, but it's uh, where it fits and. Uh, we love hosting those guys. So you, you, what I'm trying to get at, I guess, is that you regularly host championship events where the course conditions need to be prepared for tournaments. Um, and then also you're running through a lot of rounds um, on a, a busy golf course that uh, 
has a how long's your growing season would you call it in that area ideal conditions probably five to six months we're and, in that we have a couple shoulders where it could you know good conditions can go into early november there's other years where the light switch turns off in mid to late october um it just you know you never know what you're going to get um and we don't have any what i'd call traditional down time in the in the winters it's a pretty popular place to come because we do spend our service to stay pretty dry compared to traditional Pacific Northwest golf courses uh, once the rain start. So, and that's because the course is built on sand. Is yep, about ninety-five percent of the area is pure sand. So it's a it's a place that in the winter time, um, the soils typically would be saturated in that part of the world because the precipitation. Uh, exceeds the evapotranspiration and so the soils tend to be saturated from whenever the rains start in the autumn all the way through until March or April um, and I've I've uh, been surprised at that just for how long the duration is that soils remain saturated so that's why fairway sand uh, fairway top dressing with sand has been very popular in that part of the world and very effective and at Chambers Bay it was just built on sand to begin with yeah natives well it's gravelly sand being it was a, a sand and gravel mine for years um, and you know it's an ideal spot to grow grass and what they did is basically you know subgraded everything out and then capped all the what you call the fine turf areas with uh, about a foot of sand so we have clean sand over gravelly sand that must be a challenge for nutrients sometimes if it wouldn't really hold a lot of nutrients, would it? Uh, not really, but I think prior to my time, there was some pretty good, well, pretty good fertility going in through grow in. And then the first couple of years of that, and our numbers have stayed relatively stable, I guess you could say. Um, and of course, didn't bring up my soil test to say where we were <laughs> five years ago or 10 years ago, but there's nothing, been nothing alarming to where we feel we need to go in and pound out 500 pounds per acre of calcium or anything like that. Excellent. So um, for anybody who's joining us live, and I can see that there are some people joining us live, if, if you're watching this on YouTube, um, you can leave a message in the chat and we'll be able to see this. I see Randy says, hello, greetings from Bulgaria. Hello, Randy. I think it's a very sensible hour um, where you are. So that is wonderful. Um, thanks for joining us. And I know if you're watching this on LinkedIn or on Facebook, I think the comments that you post there will also show up uh, for us here in the restream window. So um, if you have any questions for me or for Eric, let us know and we'll try to answer those. So after that introduction, Eric, um, I want to talk about the everyday playability and the championship playability that you're producing there because the, um, I mean, the work that you do, the work that you have to do must be dependent on the conditions that you need to produce, right? And so yeah. I, I assume that you're not preparing the course for 
tournament conditions every day? Or is this such an elite level golf course that basically you could host a tournament there any day? Like, like, is there a difference when you're doing tournaments or? Well, you know, the expectation when you come to play here is, you know, you know, how the open women's amateur, all these other championships that you expect something close to those conditions when you come and play here off the street on a Monday in July. So yes, it's, it's championship conditions minus about 10 out of a hundred probably is our goal for every day. And, you know, it's, uh, and the difference between a, the regular play and championships is a, we have more time typically during championships to mow everything in the morning ahead of play and, and every day of the championship if needed. So it's, um, it's, it is a challenge when you have uh, a lot of play, but uh, we get creative on scheduling and how we do things and have a good relationship with the uh, golf operations staff and department to find ways to fit into uh, better maintenance practices outside of mowing and setup to get those things done. So it's very, very helpful. Well, that is very good. And I am pleased that Stephen from North Carolina, Glenn from Augusta, Darren from Naples, Florida, are all joining us also. So hello, everyone. Um, some old friends there that I've known for many, many years. Um, so the, the women's amateur specifically last summer, um, what type of green speed and firmness uh, were and maybe soil moisture were you running that week? Uh, soil moisture, probably we were targeting around that 12 to 15 range. And, you know, this is the first championship I've been involved with for women. And uh, it's definitely a different uh, target for speeds, firmness, and soil, well, obviously soil moisture drives those as well. So it was, um, we had to get a little bit, not creative, but we altered some of our practices to accommodate to get to those numbers, um, like not mowing on uh, certain approaches or giving a little extra water in some areas so the ball would not, you know, be too, you know, the ground wouldn't be too firm for those players. So I think if I remember right, our speeds were right around 12 you know, high 11s, 12, something like that. Firmness, I don't recall the exact number, but um, I would say they were probably about 50 to 60% of what we had for the four ball and the, uh, well, of course, the US Open was a little bit different, but um, they're not quite as firm as the four ball. Mm -hmm. And the, um, this, was on POA Annua Greens also. So the four ball, the U.S. Open in 2015 was on fine fescue as a base with mm -hmm. a little bit of other grasses in there. And then the greens got changed to POA Annua, to pure POA Annua. And that yeah. was in 20... 2018. 2018. And then yeah. the, the four ball was 2021 and the women's amateur was 2022. So 
they were a few years old uh, yeah. coming in a little bit like mature Poa annua. Yeah. And for people who don't know, where do, where do you get the Poa annua in that part of the world that you saw it on greens? That comes from Bossad up in the, the BC area, you know, Vancouver, BC. Well, it's not in Vancouver, but near there. And what I, my understanding is over the years, they collect cores from private clubs and uh, older greens in the area and generate their sod farm from those plugs. And obviously they add some seed in to get some coverage here and there, but um, that's the primary, probably the only source of annual sod that I know of. In, at least in that part of the world. And yeah. may, maybe, um, or at least in that part of the United States and Canada, yeah, I think uh, Poa annua sod is a bit of a rarity. I, I don't know. Other than in the Pacific Northwest, I'm not sure that there's a huge demand for it either. Probably not. Well, um, fortunately, we we have a, about what's left of it. We had 95,000 square feet of Poa annua sod for that project, and uh, what's left of that is about 25,000 square feet of. Uh, Poa annua sod right below our shop, so it's we're the only other Poa annua sod grower in the on the west coast, I think. That's that's good. So, um, what type of mowing height did you do you run that in the summer? Typically around one hundred and twenty. I mean, that's a a good average number that we carry through the year. Basically, that starts in depending on the weather, probably May through mid-September, right in there. And the fairways remain as fine fescue, is that right? Yeah, yeah, tees, fairways, green surrounds, although, you know, we get some poa annua bleeding into the initial part of the surrounds, but the bulk of it is fine fescue and a little bit of colonial bent grass as well. So I want to ask about clipping volume as it relates to playability. Now, for anybody who doesn't know, you can measure the clipping volume, which is uh, what gets collected in the baskets uh, when you mow, assuming that you're collecting clippings, and you dump that into a bucket or into some kind of receptacle that can has volume markings on it, and now you know the area from which you've mowed, and you know what the volume is. Now, that's something that I use the um, the hashtag clip vol for that. And I know you've been doing that for a while. In fact, your Twitter profile picture maybe even has a bucket on it. Yeah. And so I want to talk about clipping volume for a while because I know when I have my experience with it is I knew that this was a thing, but I, I thought it was a waste of time and I didn't think it was necessary and I didn't think it was useful and I didn't want to write down that number or bother measuring it until 2013 when I started to realize that the green speed was related to the clipping volume. Specifically, the less the grass was growing, the faster the green speed was that we were measuring. So from that, from 2013 and 2014, I've started uh, using it myself. And then I found it so useful that I started recommending that to other people. And I 
I think one of the things that I've used it for in the past, if I have a tournament coming up, I I know what a target clipping volume might be for that week. And so I know like going into that week, I tried to hit that type of clipping volume. I wonder if, if you've used clipping volume in that way. Um, I guess not necessarily a target. Um, I guess in some ways it is, but you know, typically we don't want grass growing, you know, for a championship week because, you know, we don't want to have conditions change from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. or whatever, you know, whenever play stops. So ideally there is very little growth during the day during championship week. And um, the nice thing about clipping volume is it tells you what's going on because, you know, you're mowing in the morning and you get uh, five liters off of number one green, you know, that's at about, uh, you know, half of what it'd be normal growth during the day. So most of the time we will check those numbers, check the moisture in the morning, get the green speeds and firmness and all that data, meet midday, see where we are, how we feel and watching golf and how the greens are performing. Um, sometimes we'll go out and mow that evening if we feel like, you know, after testing some speeds, do we need another mow in the, in the evening? And, you know, obviously we'll get clipping volume off of that and see, oh, well, yeah, it's worthwhile mowing or no, we're not going to mow. And four ball was probably the best example or best use of clipping volume because we were getting to the point where we couldn't use the regular size receptacle. We had to get a little mini two liter uh, container because we were getting so little grass and which was a good thing. And it turned into where we were just mowing in the mornings only until mid week of the championship when then we were starting to get to where, uh, well, let's, we mowed about 15 of the greens instead of 18 of the greens and not mowing um, in the evenings at all. And that where consistency was just lock on from morning to evening. Yes, that's, that's, that's very good insight. And we, um, we, mow, we mow the grass so much in this business. I think that's pretty much the job that uh, we'd spend a lot of time on is, is mowing grass. So it, it becomes something that we just kind of expect to do. But for a tournament, if the grass is not growing, it's actually perfect because you'll have the same conditions through the day and you just, you measure that. And then when you find that you need to adjust your measuring bucket volume size down, that's, that's a good indication. <laughs> now, what bucket do you use normally? What's, is it a, a, a food? Uh, or yeah, it's a, one of those food service, uh, what acrylic or plastic, um, translucent bucket 20 liter bucket and they're about you know 15 bucks or something like that usually i just take the old ones out of the kitchen and buy them new ones and works out pretty well and and then the smaller ones of course we have those in the shelf for championships only <laughs> no it's it's yeah i've seen i've seen some championship events where uh you can sort of fit the 
fit the clippings into a coffee cup, you know, yeah. and, and then you're like, okay, <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's, that should be pretty consistent today. Yeah. But of course, and when people talk about how you can't have tournament conditions every day, or you can't have championship conditions every day, the reason is if the grass isn't growing, it's not going to recover from any traffic damage. So when you get to the point that you have clippings so low that you can barely measure them and you might just fit it in a coffee cup or something that works okay for a while. But as you put traffic on the turf and as pitch marks damage the turf and uh, other things damage the turf if if it can't recover that just doesn't work very good long term so it's i think it's quite useful to find out what the ideal clipping volume is because on the opposite end of that if you were growing way too much grass that would have a number of problems such as you'd have to mow more than you otherwise would you would have more accumulation of thatch presumably which would require disruptive actions disruptive work to try to deal with that thatch in the future and sometimes the thatch gets so bad that you can't ever really catch up with it in in some cases where it's just like yeah it, it, it's it's quite a problem so you don't want to have too little but you don't want to have too much and that's where i think for every golf course measuring the clipping volume lets you find what the sweet spot is for just enough growth and not too much and we always think that we knew it i thought that i could tell that just by looking at the grass by rubbing the grass by looking in the basket and counting the number of empties and so on but it was a revelation to me and it's been a revelation to a lot of experienced uh, golf course superintendents that they can get more information from the clipping volume than they ever expected i presume because you're still doing it today that you are in that same camp that you um you realize that there's some information there that you find useful is that is that correct and could you could you tell me a little bit about like this is like it's so simple (laughs) (laughs) but at the same time i guess in 1999 you you paid attention to the clippings but you didn't put a number to it probably and no. it wasn't until we started, I started recommending it and other people started doing it. And then, and then you have to get over that hurdle of starting to collect the clippings. Because for me, the hardest part is, is getting the bucket and finding out how to do it with a triplex and how to record the data. And, and that's even before you start looking at the numbers. So, um, yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about your history with, with clipping volume to get to this point? What was it, 2016 when you reached out and we wanted to get, um, what do we want to do? That's, oh, I, I was asking did. you for a favor because I was trying to find in different parts of the world, I wanted to find what the growing season was because really I was interested in checking growth potential, which is an adjustment for temperature. And so, I was interested in what the absolute clipping volume was, how much it grew, but I wanted to check the seasonal curve of growth potential together with the seasonal curve of actual clipping volume. And I wanted to check that in a lot of different climates. So I was checking that in Hanoi, Vietnam, and in 
I think Hanoi was the farthest south and Reykjavik was the farthest north. And so a, lo a lot of golf course superintendents were helping me out and sharing the data. And I was able to check how different grasses grew in different parts of the world. And that, and that was kind of maybe when I reached out to you and said, could you please do this for me? Yeah. And I, you know, we did start just on the greens that we resurfaced prior to the open, the pure fine fescue greens, the seven, 10, 13. That's, that's right. That's right. And because then, I was, I was so interested yeah. in what fescue was. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So that what, went on for what mid summer of 2016 until 2017. And then why are we just doing three? You know, that's what it turned into. Let's, let's just do all of them, you know, see what we got with the, the, um, what we called the mongrel mix at the time, which was, you know, fine fescue, colonial bed grass, some creeping here and there, and then Poanua. So it just grew from, uh, 2017 onward, um, where we were collecting off of every green and measuring off of every green. And, you know, that was, we still didn't really, I mean, I had an idea what a target was, but I didn't know what the ideal target was. We just kind of, it was more of a data gathering and measuring um, for that 2017 period just to find out what we had. Then, of course, at that point, we started thinking, you know, well, we have to do something about the grains. And, uh, you know, that went on for about a year of conversation of, all right, are we going to shave them all off and go find fescue again for everything? Because, you know, really 7, 10, and 13 performed remarkably well. It didn't have a lot of contamination, but we all knew the coming up in another five years, we'd be dealing with POA still, being we are in the POA capital of, uh, of the United States. And um, so the decision was made to let's just fast forward 10 years and go 100% POA in 2018. So the we did stop collecting clippings during that growing period because we were just mowing without baskets to keep recycling nutrients. And then uh, I guess it would have been spring of 2018. We resumed, you know, we, we were getting ready to open in April. And so March, we re, I think it was March, we started resuming the collecting clippings and gathering data leading into uh, that college invitational tournament uh, in April of 2018. So, and been going strong ever since. And you do this with, uh, with both walking mowers and with a triplex, but it's, yeah. it's primarily point, triplex. Yeah, at this point, it's been triplex uh, almost 90% of the time. And that's that was driven by, you know, A, the COVID shutdown, uh, and then, you know, labor uh, availability. You know, we it's been a struggle like everybody is to, re, you know, obtain labor and then retaining has been pretty good, but um and you know you start looking at the numbers and comparing variability with walk mowers and uh you know you got six walk mowers going out you got six different methods of walk mowing no matter how hard you try to you know have everybody press four on the handles uh, this is how you empty and measure and you know there's always a little variability right out of the gate mm -hmm. and then uh, once we were essentially forced to go with triflexes um, 
you know, the variability was pretty dramatic difference between the walk mowers and the uh, triflexes on the you're, good side of triflexes. You're, you're saying from green to green, you're getting more consistent clippings. Is that what you mean by? Yeah. And by, just mower, you know, walk mower versus triplex. The variability is, is uh, I think it was 13% variability with walk mowers and about four to 5% with triflexes between mowers we've got uh neville joining us from laos and john from maryland good good morning and good evening <laughs> everybody <laughs> so um one of the things eric about measuring clipping volume with triflexes or triplex mowers is just the practicality of it usually when people are using walk mowers they often have a utility vehicle with them and in the utility vehicle, they can often carry the measuring bucket. But when you go out on a riding mower, you, you don't have a bed of a utility vehicle in which to put that bucket. So can you describe to me how it actually works? And, and then there's the other issue of if the grass isn't growing very much, then people typically wouldn't empty every green. So, um, so how how do you actually go about doing this um, in your system? Oh, it's it's uh, initially what we were doing is the setup guide takes. You know, we had all these buckets for the walk mowers on hand, so we had I think we have eight buckets all together. So the setup guy would go out ahead and just spot up and place uh, measuring buckets on the first eight greens, so the triplexes would just go out mow measure leave it in the bucket and then the setup guy would double back, pour it in his cart after measuring. Now we just, you know, one guy puts the bucket in between, you know, dry on the floor of the triflex and goes out and measures and, you know, logs the data. And we take our clippings and pile them along the cart path. So either the triplexes after they're done mowing, come back and pick up clippings or one of the other uh, setup guys will grab them on the way through so we don't have piles sitting along the the walking and uh, maintenance paths everywhere. So they, they dump it on the paths and then it gets picked up later? Yeah, yeah. Unless there's somebody nearby that can put it in the back of the utility vehicle or something like that. Usually the triplexes are out an hour before people even show up to work. We have couple guys that typically show up really well not early early but earlier than the rest and they're most cases they're the ones mowing greens and do they empty every green they empty oh, all yeah. three baskets on every green yeah oh yeah yeah and, and then that's a routine now and initially you know it was like when we first started this whole process with walk mowers, the question every day was, are we measuring today? And I go, were you mowing every day? Yeah, if we're mowing today, we're measuring. <laughs> so it took about a year of, you know, just kind of being persistent in, with our answer. And, and uh, it's, it's routine now. And how much time would you say that it takes uh, to, to empty three baskets and record the clippings? Uh, maybe a minute. Probably less than driving over into the rough or mound and emptying the baskets and then creating a growing environment for weeds. So we retain everything and haul them up to the shop afterwards. So really it's a, 
I don't think there's any difference between just casting them off and measuring. So, yeah, I th that's that's excellent insight, and uh, perhaps perhaps you talked about that on Joe Galati's podcast, and I thought that was really good. Or perhaps it's something we talked about at the 2019 U.S. Open when we were sitting around there at Pebble Beach. But um, I, because I was asking you about the time constraints or the time. You know, the, the problem that every everybody says they don't have enough time to do clipping volume, and you come back with the answer of you think it's 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 less time than having to drive the machine to a location at which they could safely put the clippings. And on your property, at least, there's really nowhere that they can safely put the clippings without increasing the weed pressure, I believe, because you're saying... By adding the, the clippings, it increases the organic matter, increases the water, um, the water content of the soil, and you'll get a lot of Holcus lanatus. Uh, yes. Yorkshire fog will tend in in that climate. That is the species. Well, plus in your case, you've got Poa annua, so you're going to have Poa annua yeah. coming up and Yorkshire yeah. fog in fine fescue, which would just be nasty. That that's not a good combination. No. Well, on the other hand, you know, like. When I first started mowing in whatever it was, 90 or 91, everybody has their routine spot to dump their clippings, you know, you know instead of casting them everywhere. We, we find our happy spot every day after the 11th green, you know, over by the tree, and, you know, you get these little ingrained habits. And you can still see spots where, you know, probably before my time where they used to dump up in the dunes, which are unirrigated, where you have different plants growing than, you know, undesirable plants that mm -hmm. uh, tend to take advantage of that extra nutrients and um, essentially mulch. Um, and, when, you know, besides the velvet grass, we do get, you know, downy brome is another one that's a challenge to deal with around here, too. That take advantage of that stuff. Stephen asks if the uh, majority of the greens mowing done with triplexes and I think the answer to that now is yes. Can you yeah. say, do you do you occasionally walk mow, but just for special occasions? Um, I would say as a rule, it's triplexes. We do have, like for the women's am, we walk mowed early in the week, mainly because we can't do a 9-3 mow with our triplexes. We just have too many bunker edges and steep mounds on either side. It just doesn't make sense. So we would take the walk mowers out with the out front brushes and essentially groom 9-3 for, I think we did it two evenings and uh, with a dry mow. And, and that, you know, that's, those are the kind of things we look at for um, mowing with walk mowers is just getting that extra angle in and uh, grooming with that. So What's the average green size out there? God, what is it? 8,000, I think. 8,000 so, square feet, I think. Is that a little bit bigger than average? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we have 6.1 acres total. So it's a, it's a good, you know, six man hours, essentially, to mow everything. Walk, walking. Or oh, riding. walk mowing. Riding. No, I mean, yeah, riding. So you send out yeah. how many? Do you send out two? Yeah, two. We have the capability to send out four if we ever need to. It's I think we've done it once. 
because we have four triplexes, two for greens, two for surrounds. And uh, there have been occasions where we'll you know, load up four uh, green cutting units, you know, say if it's a shotgun, and un, un, I don't want to say unreasonable, but a crazy, crazy early shotgun will have the occasion to send out four. And so the operators on the triplex are carrying a bucket and it's sitting on the machine in between their legs, basically. Yeah. Yeah. And so you don't put a bracket on the outside of the machine like I've seen some people do. Okay, so no. they, they just carry it with them, and that's easy. And then you said every green they empty it, and then they leave, they'll measure it, and then they'll dump the bucket out on a hard surface like a cart path, and somebody will mm -hmm. come by and pick it up later. Yep. And then you said they note down or they record or input the data. Like at, at that, let's say somebody's measured um, nine liters, or are you doing quarts or liters or gallons? What? Leaders. But, so you do leaders. So if they're yeah. doing, so let's say they've got nine leaders. What off of green number one? What's the process to get that nine leaders from the the measurement into something that you can use? Oh, into the computer. It's text. They'll text me, and I'll either wait and do it when they're all done, or if you know, I see. If it's 12 liters off of one green, that kind of sends off a red flag that oh, we're get a little more than what we'd normally do. Um, and we have a cheat sheet that they'll carry at times. It just depends on the time of year where, you know, if we're getting one liter uh, is our, our target or 10 liters is our target, um, if we exceed that threshold, you know, Especially, uh, typically in the summer, we'll say, oh, that, let's mow that green again because that's growing a little bit more than we expected that day. So we have thresholds for every green to where it's, uh, if it meets or exceeds that number, we'll double mow it that day. And the operator has that cheat sheet so they could, if they get enough clippings off the first mow, they can check that cheat sheet and they would then know instantly that they need to do a, a second cut on that green. Yeah. And that's, yeah, we probably do that 25, 30% of the time. It's usually revolves around if we have a, a tournament of some sort that we want to have everything be a little step above a normal day to day. Or if it's really, you know, see something where we're going to be growing a little too much, we'll, you know, trigger that. So for your POA greens, what's the what's the typical number that you get for clipping volume? I think you mentioned earlier, but I didn't quite catch it. Um, it's like 0.7, something like that is our ideal. I, th I think that it leaders per hundred. Yeah. I, I, the units that I like now, and I started off doing leaders per hundred. And then I, I realized we often had to use decimal points. So, <laughs> so you have 0 0.7 liters per hundred square meters. And my friend Bjarni in Iceland said, please, Mike, a stick with liters and hundred square meters. He said, it's very easy to visualize a liter and it's very easy to visualize a hundred square meters. A hundred square meters is 92 point. No, uh, 92.9 square meters is a thousand square feet. So basically a hundred meters is about, I'm a hundred square meters is about 
1,000 square feet, and one liter is about one quart. And so um, it's something that people think it might be easy to visualize, but the numbers come out kind of funky because you've got something with a decimal point divided by something that has a hundred, it's multiplying a hundred times the base unit. So I came to realize that milliliters per um, square meter is my much preferred unit because now we can just say it's seven. So now we're, we start yeah. talking about integer numbers and you would very rarely, hope, hopefully you would not uh, ever be above a hundred um, because to be above a hundred, that would be more than 10 liters per hundred square meters, which would be a lot of growth. Now I've seen that on warm season grass in the summer and sometimes when it's hot and, and the grass is growing, it grows a lot. Um, but, yeah. but it's, that's not really ideal for good, uh, putting surfaces to have grass that's growing that fast. So, yeah, right. so your number is 0 0.7 would be pretty typical. And then, yeah, I've, I've heard the same. I've heard for uh tiff eagle Bermuda grass, if you can get the, the clipping volume down less than five, less than uh, 0 0.5 mil, uh, liters per hundred square meters, somewhere below that, the clipping volume, uh, I'm sorry, the green speed will be quite similar between morning and afternoon. So mm -hmm. that's that's often a, a goal of high, uh, high quality turf grass maintenance is to have the putting green speed not change too much through the day. So um, let's see, we can still talk a little bit more about clipping volume because there's there's other things that people use it for. And I, I wonder if you have used it for, I mean, you're not like, yeah, tell me what you are using it for other than just putting a second cut on the grains if it's growing too fast. There must be some other things in doing this for multiple years that you've noticed it's useful for. I think the thing that interests me uh, once, especially when we were walk mowing and still with triplexes too, but looking at numbers between, you know, the what was the clipping volume for mower one versus mower two versus mower three and you know i have that all broken off on the spreadsheet at this point but you know when you see that big variability between walk more three and five well why is that is it because the mower's off is it cutting different is it the operator um and i'm still haven't quite wrapped my head around is eight green that day that we you know say we got 12 liters instead of the expected eight, like the average was for everybody else, all the other greens. Is it because that green that day, or is it because the mower that day? I'm still not, I think it's going to require a bigger spreadsheet <laughs> to yeah. see, you know, Wait, what's yeah. the expected growth for that day for that green. Yeah. Statistically, and, uh, that's very interesting because um, you've got, you've got the mower, the potential mower differences and you'd like to have all the mowers set up. So they're going to cut exactly the same, but, um, above a certain difference from what's normal, you could flag a mower as being not, I mean, it's either cutting too much grass or it's not cutting enough grass. But if you're using walk mowers or pedestrian mowers, then 
you have different operators on each one and the different operators may have a different operating speed or they may have a different down pressure on the um or up pressure on, on the bed yeah. knife and the rollers and so they will tend to get different clippings uh different amounts of clipping so you've got potential mower issues you've got potential operator issues and then you've got micro environments around the site where every every property has this even you know on a on a football field you're going to have the the shaded end and the sunnier end and and right. with temperature differences and soil moisture differences and light differences and on golf courses you have elevation change and shade differences and you know even on a place like chambers bay that famously just has the lone fir tree um because of the contour of the ground you you have quite a bit of shade issues out there um yeah and so um and then maybe you have different uh age of the greens or different age of the root zones at, at some properties and different drainage patterns and and so on so you've got all these micro environments so you got the other factor is is it natural that this particular location is growing more or less so statistically it's very interesting to be able to figure out how you could flag that and it would be nice uh for somebody to make an app or or a spreadsheet where you could put the data in in real time and it could it could flag this and we've sort of talked about this a little bit and it's something that uh yeah it's it's an interesting challenge it's quite possible um it's just who's going to take the time to do it but i think yeah. i think as as so the way that i would try to approach this problem would be to try to smooth out the location effect or the micro environment effect so for example if your 14th green typically would have the most clipping volume on and so it's already adjusted for area we don't we're not saying like a big green gets more clippings and a and a small green gets fewer clippings literally they do but because you divide in the denominator you take the volume divided by the area so when you do that it normalizes for the size of the green so then we can start looking at the microclimate effects that's something where i would use a running average and mm -hmm. so i think that you could say okay this green over the past uh seven days has if we were using a seven day trailing average for example you could say that that green has typically been growing, um, let's say, 8% more than the average of all the greens across the property. And so then you could put a confidence, some confidence bars or intervals around that. So you could have an expected amount of clippings that that green would get compared to the other greens on the course. So as people start putting in the data, if you were doing this in real time, you could quickly see what your, after you've put two greens in, you get an average. After you've got three greens in, now you have an average for that day that's going to continually be updated. And you can start to see what particular greens deviate from that day's average that's being updated in real time. And then you can compare that for on a green by green basis back to what that running average is that's calculated for each green. So you've got an expected amount for each green. So that that works. And then you have to add in another flag for knowing what uh, machine and operator you've got. But right. maybe with the triplexes, you only look at machine and you, 
you would consider the operator effect to be not uh, not likely to be an operator effect. Yeah, definitely, definitely. That's that's a equalizer there. Um, yes, yeah, two mowers, six cutting units. You know, I think that is a lot. Like I said, the variability drops pretty significantly between walk mowing and and triplexing. Yeah, I've I. Uh, I have been impressed with the quality of surfaces that get produced by triplexes. I was at the Catalonia Championship last year, uh, which is a event on the DP, or was an event last year on the DP World Tour, the European Tour, and that's at uh, in in Girona in Spain. And uh, that event, they were triplexing, and they were. Uh, just producing some wonderful surfaces and it's a very consistent cut and a very high quality of cut and it happens really fast too compared to the walk mowing so it's interesting that uh the technology that's available those mowers though yeah. are pretty expensive and hard to get i think yeah it's a it's a challenge right now but hopefully things improve on the supply chain all right so so you're the one that does the data input. So you, you, you're getting text yeah. messages, you're getting text messages on your phone on a green by green basis. And so you, and you know, the total and the area is just in a spreadsheet. So you never need to worry about the green area. So you're just getting a total of this green got six liters. This green got four liters. This green got 11 liters, for example. Yeah. Typically, um, if I'm not too busy on the course, I can just get on my phone and go to the Greenkeeper app and I'll plug that in as I go around or, uh, you know, once I get back to the office, I'll take that data and put it in my spreadsheet as well. So the, right now I just have, you know, Greenkeeper app is kind of the bare bones primary data entry as we go live and then, you know, end of the morning setup, I'll go back to the computer and enter into the spreadsheet. Because so in, that's like five minutes at worst. And the spreadsheet you're doing because you're you can track the mowers a little bit more carefully and, and a few other things that you can do with the data that um, I presume would be not possible to do with you can't adjust the settings in Greenkeep perhaps the way you can adjust the settings in your own spreadsheet. No, it doesn't track mower differences and all that stuff at this point. I know I've I've mentioned that before, but it's not quite there yet. Yeah, that that's an interesting one because one of the things that that people tend to notice when they finally get over the hurdle and start doing clipping volume, um, they start noticing mower differences that they you can't see it with your eye, like no, and you never would know that it it's existing. You'd never know that it's happening. And it's, it's not like your mechanics making a mistake because as far as they know, everything's set up the same, but then you start to notice, Oh, the behind center distance was different between these machines. Let's not, let's find a way that we don't let that happen again. Oh, the real diameter was different between these machines and you'll get twice as much clippings with a different real diameter, depending on the mower. Um, I mean, mm -hmm. I, that kind of thing can happen. And then you're like, Oh, right. Let's make sure that we always have the same real diameter 
and and things like that. You as you as you do that, you start to notice it, and then you can improve the system and the the way things get done, and and presumably improve the consistency. Yeah, well, a good example of that was oh, probably back in 2019 with the triplexes, we were um, going out, and it was it was a difference, but not totally alarming difference uh, for a couple of days, and then you know it kept you know through the week kept noticing that you know it was not still not alarming but there was a difference and i couldn't figure out what was going on and then um finally asked the mechanic uh at the time you know we're seeing something going on can't figure it out and so we put them up on the lift well one they put up uh the 11 blade reels and set them at green height instead of the 14 on one of them so we had one 14 blade mower and one 11 blade mower mowing greens for that week. Mm -hmm. yeah. That was just a lack of uh, paying attention, I guess, is the best way to put it. But then, then you flag that as like, okay, let's uh, let's make sure that we check that because yeah. you wouldn't think that you'd make that mistake, but then it happens. But then once it's happened, you can learn from it, and clipping volume allows that to be diagnosed. So yeah. that's something that a lot of people um, comment to me after they start doing this is they, they find issues with the machines. So as I, I think it's quite useful also, in, and we'll transition into talking about organic matter management and uh, keeping the POA greens there as firm as they are um, to host championships and, and, you know, to manage that balance between healthy POA and, uh, firm enough surfaces. Um, clearly, the amount that the grass grows has some effect on how much organic matter is being produced above ground because we're measuring that with the clipping volume. And we would expect that how much the grass grows above ground is going to be proportional in some way to how much it grows below ground. And so it would make sense that the less the grass is growing overall, the less organic material that is being produced below ground. So for example, you mentioned earlier during the women's amateur or no, it was during the four ball that you had to adjust the, uh, the size of the clipping buckets <laughs> because yeah. the, your standard one was so big that you couldn't get a measurement because the clippings yeah. you were collecting were so small. So when, so basically the grass wasn't growing and when the grass is not growing, you can expect that the thatch accumulation rate at that time is, can you guess a number for me? Whew, gosh, I couldn't. I'm gonna, I'm gonna guess that the number is zero. I'm gonna yeah. guess that, that you're not accumulating thatch when, when the grass is not growing. And, if, and if, if the grass is dead, which we don't want, but if you've got grass that's dead, it's not growing, the thatch accumulation rate is zero. If we go around Tacoma, Washington, and look at unirrigated lawns in a typical dry summer there, the grass will be completely dormant and not growing. At the time when it's dormant and not growing and those lawns are all straw-colored, I would say that the thatch accumulation rate at that time the below ground organic matter accumulation rate is zero. It's, it's not happening. 
And so mm -hmm. those are extreme cases, right? We, we're talking about a tournament where the grass is basically not growing. So I'm going to say there's no thatch being uh, being developed. And I talked about dead grass. If the grass is dead, there's no thatch uh, right. being developed. And if you've got a lawn or a turf that is completely dormant because of drought, for example, the it's not growing, so it won't be producing thatch. So those are all extreme cases, but then you go back to the day-to-day -day reality and you can think, well, the amount that the grass is growing must have some effect on what's happening in the happening in the soil and then we have to think how do we manage that because basically let's assume that we don't have a thatch problem let's assume that the soil is just the way we want it in terms of a nice mix of organic material and sand and soil and so you've got a nice mat there that's just right it would make sense that you would have a growth rate or try to establish a growth rate that you know what it is and you know how much sand top dressing is required to keep it that way year after year. And probably it would make sense that, you know, if you need to verticut and if you need to do coring, uh, hollow tine aerification, that sort of thing and, or dry ejecting or whatever to get some more sand down there, um, that, you know, kind of here's when the grass grows this much, I know that I need to do this amount of work. And I, and I think um, the clipping volume can be really useful because you can add it up. Like you were mentioning when everybody was asking, do we have to measure clippings today? <laughs> and, and you said, yeah, are we mowing? <laughs> so if we're mowing, we're measuring clippings. That's where I think it's really, so one way that it's really useful is if you add up the total amount of growth over the course of a year, and then you, you, you can look, okay, when our grass grew this much, this year and we put this much sand and we got the results that we wanted then that gives you a good idea about if you if you grow the grass the same rate next year you probably will get the good results with the same amount of sand so i'm transitioning here into organic matter management and i'm transitioning into the om246 method of measuring total organic matter but i, I consider clipping volume really valuable for this we've talked about green speed consistency we've talked about mower and operator and micro environment effects um and i think like looking at the total amount of clippings over time whether you're looking at monthly totals or annual totals it gives you some idea of how much sand you would need to apply and it, and it gives you a check on that mm -hmm. yeah and that's you know looking at that is now let's get to the practical point is now you got a top dress and in our situation is okay we have play at seven um what do we do to get top dressing out that's the easy part you know we can start at four start top dressing in the dark but you know typical pacific northwest it's not necessarily dry air in the mornings around here so now we got to figure out how we're going to brush this in without, you know, having to go four, five, six directions to get the sand in. So, and then, you know, have it ready for play and not getting it, you know, balls collecting sand on them when they're rolling across. So we had to get creative uh, with the golf operations where um, Tuesdays is our typical 
maintenance day where we'll start on the back nine those days at nine o'clock. So the tea times we'll the tea times start on the second nine. Yes. Yes. Okay. So Mondays we'll typically go out top dress the back. You know, we got basically three and a half, four hours ahead of play. We can get things dry and, and brush them in there. And then Tuesday, we will go out on the front and top dress those. And uh, of course, we're at the mercy of the weather as usual. And so we dance around sometimes. It's Tuesday, Wednesday, if Monday gets fogged out or washed out or something like that. And so we're, um, you know, measuring how much we put out. I don't ideally, I don't think we've met the ideal number yet. And that goes back to, you know, listening to Chris talk about, you know, the heavy top dress twice, I think it's twice a year, spring and fall or something like that. And I don't know if that would work for us because of play volume. So we're reviewing what we're going to do. And maybe this year we're going with the light frequent top dressing. So low impact on daily play. We can manage to get out, you know, at a reasonable hour and stay ahead of play as well. Um, so it'll be uh, kind of go back to what we used to do a few years ago is, you know, the light frequent applications of sand, uh, just kind of the IV drip top dressing, I guess is the best way to put it. Which should be matched somehow with the clipping volume in theory. And nobody yep. knows quite uh, exactly how uh, how much sand is required for every unit of clipping volume that's collected, but it must be related somehow. So, for example, um, if you, let's say that uh, over the course of a year, you, you, uh, you said on a daily basis, you might be about 0 0.7 or something liters yeah. per 100 square meters. So let's say over the course of a year, you had... 250 liters per 100 square meters. So you add it all together, and that's the total amount of clippings per year on average across the golf course. So if we had that number, uh, that's 250 liters of clippings per 100 square meters or 2,500 uh, milliliters per square meter, which we would just say it's 2.5 liters per square meter. So that's the numbers that we're talking about, and that's that's kind of typical. Um, Hazeltine National Golf Club, you, you mentioned Chris, that's Chris Tritabaugh. Hazeltine National Golf Club last year was right about 1.5 liters uh, per square meter, which would be 150 liters per 100 square meters over the course of the entire year. So with your POA greens and a little bit longer uh, – shoulder seasons than what they have in Minnesota. I guess that you're producing more clippings. So I'm going to guess that it's reasonable that you're somewhere around 250 or, or mm -hmm. 200 or something like that. So the, the thing that I would say is if you grew 250 liters this year, and if next year you grew 200 liters, then whatever your sand requirement is, it should go down by that um 20 percent or so right because right? so you've you're, if, if you grew 20 percent less grass i predict that you you probably produce 20 percent less organic matter below ground which means the amount of sand required 
assuming you're putting out the right amount to begin with. So if you're putting right. out the right amount to begin with, then you can adjust it down by 20%. So you can, you can check all of this stuff in real time with the clipping volume. And it, it definitely uh, is not something that turns this into robotic green keeping. There's, it's still completely an art of green keeping. But for me, these are just useful numbers because you, if you know that this year you're tracking 20 and maybe it's because of the weather that you're tracking 20% lower in clippings. Well, then you don't right. have to be beating yourself up that you're also 20% behind last year in the amount of sand that you're getting out. You can say, okay, we're right in line, you know? So, so now you're not worrying about something and you can focus on, on something that's really important. So, mm -hmm. you know, that, that's something where, once you start making this part of your routine, um, these kind of things just sort of happen naturally that, that you, you have these numbers handy, you can look at it. And then when you're applying the art of green keeping, uh, you have this information that, you know, and you can make better decisions, hopefully. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So, um, Let's talk a little bit about OM246, which you've been doing. Um, OM246 is a, a test for soil organic material that you're looking at the organic material at the zero to two centimeter depth, which is the top 0 0.8 inches. So it's a little bit less than an inch layer. So you look, the zero point is the, the soil the 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 base of the plant the top of the soil it's not the top of the plant it's the base of the plant that's zero then you go down 0 0.8 inches or two centimeters and then you do that again to go down to two to four centimeters then you do that again go down to four to six centimeters and those samples get treated at the lab as if uh basically they, they don't get treated at the lab. Um, they just get burned as is. So, uh, the typical soil sample, when it goes to the lab, it, it gets dried and crushed and passed through a screen and all of the plant material gets removed. And then they only work with the soil portion. And so any of your thatch and stuff doesn't get measured on a traditional soil test, which is why the typical organic matter that you get in a golf course putting green is going to be about 1.5 or 1.7% or something. That's what you would measure on a golf course putting green sample, because that's how much soil organic matter is there. But if you're measuring the total organic material, which is what the OM246 test does, then uh, you start getting numbers in the top two centimeters, you get numbers like 5% or 6% or 7% or 12% um, total organic material by weight. So this is a further check of if you're putting enough sand top dressing, if you're doing enough verticutting, if you're doing enough organic matter management work. Because if you see your organic material on this OM246 test go up and then next year it goes up again and next year it goes up again. So if you see that number just going up and up and up, it is an indication that you are not keeping up with the organic matter accumulation rate. And now you started this with the USGA with the research project that they're doing 
about this method, I believe in 2020, probably, or 2021. Yes. And then you've done testing with ATC with using the same method um, for the past two years, I believe. Right. Uh, so, so we had samples in 2021 and 2022. And the organic matter was going up a little bit. So I, if I remember right, you're around six or seven or eight percent, which is yeah, in the in the top, yeah, in the top two centimeters. But maybe you were hoping that you were six, but the, I think the most recent ones they're closer to eight. Now, um, I've done a couple of these ATC office hours with Chris Tridabaugh, and his most recent samples were five point two on creeping bent grass. I I don't want anybody to have a target level that's based on what somebody else has at their golf course because i i think what this is really useful for is checking how things change at your course over time because if your conditions are fine then and you have greens that are eight percent organic matter i think it's silly to try to make it five just because you want it's like chasing a number in the soil i um i don't chase a number in the soil for a test result if the surfaces are already performing well. But be aware that if they're performing well, then probably you'd like to keep it consistent. So if it jumps from 8% up to 11%, then, then I'd say, okay, I was really happy at 8%. It's jumped to 11%. Um, even though they're performing well, maybe I'm more comfortable like getting it back down to 8% or something. So... Hey, we'll see. I guess you'll be testing again in about March or April or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Pull them March first. Mar okay, yeah, March. Okay, March first. Yeah. Um, I, I have a I have a suspicion we jumped up a little bit in twenty two um, from our first sample, mainly because we didn't top dress as much, you know, leading into the women's am due to weather conditions, and then, you know. Obviously, can't top dress a week ahead of the women's am, but yeah, it'll be interesting to see where we sit. So, that's that. Have you done Istric testing before? I think we did abandon early 2000s. I think we did. Istric testing is something like that where they're testing at different layers. Um, but the Istric testing uh, somehow returns numbers that that don't match what you get from OM246. So OM246 is a method that uh, burns everything and it's it's measuring the organic matter by weight. It's assuming that the material that burns off when the sample is, is ignited in a muffle furnace, so you measure the weight before it burns and you measure the weight after it burns and then uh, you know how much material burned off and it's assumed that the soil did not burn but the organic matter did. And so you've got your mass loss on ignition. And this is something that's been done in the UK for 20 plus years in uh, New Zealand for 20 plus years. And it's, it's uh, been a revelation for me just, just with how useful it is. And I'm surprised uh, that, well, I mean, at this point, it's it's kind of taking off in the United States and Canada and, and other parts of the world. A lot of people are starting to look at these numbers. I guess um, 
I'm surprised that I was so resistant to doing this because I knew about it. But <laughs> as with most things, you know, I, I didn't see the light with clipping volume until 2013. And with the OM246, I didn't really see the light on this till 2016, 2017. Um, even though I knew about it in 2005 and 2009 and, and so on. But finally, I realized I was recommending that people just go throw sand based on a, a target annual number without ever checking if it was having the desired effect. And I was recommending that people do a certain amount of core airification um, just based on like, this is a standard amount of core aeration that you should do. And I was never checking if that was, um, leading to the desired results in terms of managing the organic matter, which is what I was saying that that was all about. So, um, I, yeah, it, it's something that I think is really useful. And I guess you, um, probably, well, I won't put words in your mouth. Tell me what, what you think about it. Well, I think the, you know, monitoring that to see you know what we've done have we accomplished anything with this um you know we were dryjecting up until last year and you know gained some ground in that respect i think the you know well i want to see what happens with this year's samples to see where we sit with the amount of sand we put out last year and see what our, you know, results and looking back. And, um, you know, one thing we, I haven't core aerified since 1999, I think, maybe 2000 on courses I've been on, mainly because recovery for fescue, you know, when I was abandoned, just you can't, uh, you can't compare solid time versus core aeration. I mean, it's just a night and day difference on the amount of time it takes to recover and kind of carried that same practices on uh, even on the POA. I mean, we've spot clarified some spots that were, you know, traffic areas in a corner of a grain, just very minimal. But for the bulk of it, it's been solid tining with, uh, you know, sand top dressing ahead of it and drag it in behind. And then, you know, it, you know, like I said, it'll be interesting to see where we sit. Um, in our next set of samples. Stephen has a comment or, yeah, he's got a comment, also a question. He said he uh, assumes with the light dressings that the hope is to water in the sand versus uh, having to drag it in so much. Is is that what you're looking to do this year, perhaps? Um, typically, if we do light, we'll, depending on the soil moisture, um, we may water it in, but in most cases, we have the either the Sampro, which uh, has the Greens Groomer brush behind it. That gets a little too aggressive to where you're standing grass up again. And, and usually we don't mow right behind because, A, we don't have time, and two, we don't want to beat up the mower. So we'll take those giant six-foot-wide magnum brooms and just have a couple guys walk, walk uh, with the brushes behind to get the clumps down basically and hopefully it's a dry day <laughs> <laughs> yeah <clears throat> you get a lot of dew in the summer don't you even though it's dry but with those yes. cold the cold nighttime temperatures um it it must be dewy oh yeah well we're right on the water so we get a lot of that marine influence and 
wet air. Um, typically, it's, you know, we don't get a lot of fog in the growing season, but we can. And it's usually shoulder seasons where we see a little more fog than anything at all. So, now, you, and they'll come in. We'll have a clear morning when we're top dressing sometimes and get to hole six and all of a sudden the fog locks in and it's a nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, like, would you agree with me that it would be desirable to apply as little sand as possible? Yeah, for us, yeah. Mainly just to keep everybody happy. Yeah, that's, it's just, it's just the, practical. Yeah. That's the default, yeah. And you mentioned that you think, you suspect your OM246 numbers, your organic matter at the top of the root zone, you suspect that it's gone up a little bit uh, over the that past year. Assumption. Yeah. And, and now do you notice anything with uh, water infiltration or firmness of the surfaces uh, or the surface is just staying a little bit wet. Do you notice anything um, on that aspect of it that would lead you to think that that the organic matter may be a little bit higher? I think the just observation during the you know the shoulder seasons and the rainy periods and, and winter. You know, you look at ball marks and and just firmness in general um, in the off season and the shoulder seasons. I think. If we can get it to where we have a little less organic, even at eight um, percent, I think I, I don't know if this ideal is a good word for it, but I think we might gain some ground with firmness in those April, May, October periods if we get a little bit more uh, lower the organic matter a little bit more. And so, uh, where I think this is really useful is you've just explained a goal that you have is in the the shoulder seasons where your evapotranspiration rate is not terribly high and maybe the surfaces would dry down a little bit faster if they didn't hold so much moisture um and and so presumably if the organic material at the surface of the green is a little bit lower you may be able to accomplish that goal and where the om246 numbers come in so helpful this measurement is you can check the effect of the work that you're trying to do to achieve that goal and the way i always used to do it is i'd understand what the goal was and then i might recommend some techniques or some work that would be done to try to achieve that goal and then we'd look and see if we'd achieve that goal but we weren't really calibrating it and checking it so carefully as we can do with the OM246. So if you find out that you've, uh, that, let's say it's gone up a lot, um, and then you try to do some work to change it, and you know how you've changed the work, and then you find that the OM246 did not go down the amount that you expect it to, or you wanted it to, then it tells you we need to change our technique. What, what we were trying to do wasn't as effective as what we want. So um, I guess it's just an extra step in there. We're still identifying what we want to achieve and we're still deciding what work we're going to do to try to achieve it. But it's, it's an extra check on whether that work is actually effective. That's, that's kind of the way that I would look at it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I think too is, um, still, you know, we've talked about sampling in the spring and the fall, OM246, you know, A, 
spring is, well, this is what we got to do this year and sample in the fall. Well, this is, this is our results basically. Um, and be, and mainly the interest be, for me to sample in the fall would be there's opportunity from October through March or April. Uh, we'll, we'll have some years where we can essentially treat, you know, the greens like summertime because we have such mild weather and it's not, not, not totally year. washed out, <laughs> you know, yeah. and we're still, sometimes we're still growing. Mm -hmm. And we've had January's, I look back uh, about a month ago, I looked back in 2019, we had, you know, we were up above one on some of the mowings, which I had to go back and look at all my data and put to see if I'd put a 20 in instead of a two, you mm -hmm. know, and, uh, you know, the numbers are right. And, you know, it's so that, that's why I, the only reason I've ever kind of considered that fall sample to say, well, maybe we can sneak in some more practices and not uh, and kind of build ourselves up for that following spring. That that uh, what you've just mentioned um, reminds me of something or I mean, it made me think of something that I've never thought of about clipping volume, which is that um, you could look at how much growth you typically get at different times of the year in reality. So it's not based on textbook. It's not based on uh, growth potential temperature modeling about what might happen, but you can look at what actually has happened. And then you could use that to schedule um, top dressing, like you mentioned, um, so if you say on average in January, you grow this much, you know that if it grows that much, it can accept the canopy could accept this much sand. And right. so you could start to plan in into the future based on historical growth data for your site, um, when you could schedule certain works and, and that could extend to coring, uh, or solid time. Also, if you're looking to maximize recovery, you you know, in addition to just knowing and observing when the grass is growing the fastest, you can also look at at what the actual numbers are. Mm -hmm. So that's that's something that I think is is useful. So um, so we've talked about clipping volume. That's uh, something that I think is useful in a number of ways. We talked about OM246. That's also something I think of uh, as being useful in a number of ways. Um, you also did some soil nutrient testing last year, and we interpreted those using the MLSN guidelines. And I didn't review the report before we're having this call, so I don't have the numbers off the top of my head. But I'm going to say that I seem to recall that I didn't have to recommend a lot of fertilizer, and I just uh, there was nothing crazy there. So it's mostly about just getting the nitrogen rate right. And I suppose I recommended a small amount of uh, phosphorus and potassium, if any, and nothing else, I, I suppose. Right. Um, and that kind of makes sense. I don't know if you, have you ever been the kind of superintendent who put a lot of products or are you usually keeping it pretty simple? Uh, typically simple, um, you know, especially jumping from spyglass to Bannon to dramatically different, I don't know, uh, cultural practices, because, you know, you have carts and different grass, you know, at spyglass compared to, you know, the ryegrass versus fine fescue, and it's like a nine-day difference on nutrient demand. Um, 
And initially, trying to think back, what we used to do at Bandon, we'd, we'd go out with organic fertilizer, you know, probably at about a pound and a half in the spring, or maybe two pounds. And then, you know, and that works. And what we found was, you know, the downside of organic is, especially in that mild climate, is all of a sudden, you know, you get the the great January week of weather, you know, at 55 to 60 degrees and you get a, you know, unneeded growth spurt. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we, you know, started researching back then, trying to find any kind of fine fescue information in the early 2000s was non-existent mm -hmm. on paper or on the computer. And then we kind of looked at, well, what if we didn't you know did a do a uh, granule application on uh, basically fairways and and uh, so we started looking at well why don't we just do an iv drip of ammonium sulfate and iron you know just carry it through that way and and i think you know we had some carryover effect from organic uh, fertilizer for more than one year and you know from and they're initial applications before I got there. And we found that just, you know, monthly at a quarter pound of N on fescue, you know, from say April till October worked pretty well. It's a little more demanding to try to spray, <laughs> you know, that, that rate, you know, with 90 acres of, you know, fine turf. So we, we figured it out just sharing sprayers so we'd have three sprayers per course go out and bang it out that way and and that's kind of carried up to here too as well as we just try to keep things simple and give the plant what it's needed so so you just kind of keep it taking along at the growth rate that you that you want at that time of year yeah yeah like right now our our basic pack is iron and a little bit of wetting agent sometimes we'll put in like 0.05 of ammonium sulfate just to see if we can get some keep pace with our busy traffic uh even in the winter um, sometimes we don't put ammonium sulfate in we'll just keep the iron going well good so when we when we test those soils again presumably this spring um we will be able to see how things have changed and you probably use the greenkeeper app do you record the the fertilizer application so you'll be able to know how much nitrogen has been applied which gives an expected maximum um, nutrient harvest and you'll know how much phosphorus has been applied and know how much potassium has been applied so we can look at how the phosphorus and potassium have changed in the soil over time and the way that MLSN works is we're really looking at the trends over time, how, if things are changing in the soil the way that we expect them to based on nutrient inputs. And we're not trying to hit uh, these fantasy target levels in the soil and say that there's an ideal soil that would have, you know, 75 parts per million potassium or something. We just want to make sure that the grass has enough. And that's all dependent on your grass type and on how much nitrogen you put. So this type of method is is really simple and it's just based on how much the grass could use. Let's make sure the soil has enough. If the soil doesn't have enough, then that element instantly gets triggered to be recommended as fertilizer. Mm -hmm. So that's 
that's something that, uh, yeah, it's not the way I did it when I was a golf course superintendent. And then I, it's not the way that I did it when I got my PhD. I know you sent me some sample, some soil samples from Bandon and, and, uh, I've got that report somewhere on one of my old hard drives and the way that I would have analyzed it and made recommendations was still based like on a snapshot, a single snapshot in time of saying, based on your, what your soil test results are right now, here's what I'm going to recommend. And I can still do that, but where, where MLSN is really useful and the way that I, I recommend people, uh, look at their soil test results is look at how things have changed over time. So you, you know, your grass is performing well, and you can see that a certain element is going down by so much. So if you want to make sure that the grass is supplied with enough, if you know how much it's gone down, you know how much you need to resupply. And, um, that type of thing is really efficient. It's, it's really efficient because it practically guarantees that you don't have a nutrient deficiency. And at the same time, it avoids, over application yeah so that's something that i'm going to keep trying to explain keep trying to understand better and uh hopefully keep seeing a lot of people get good results with that so um i've got a question for you i'm going to kind of change the topic um you and i have both been in this business for uh, many years and uh you know we you said you first started working on a golf course in 1991, I think, and your background mm -hmm. prior to that was agriculture. Yep. So, so, um, and then 1991, so you're 32 years into a greenkeeping career. Um, and I know a lot of people, uh, are not doing MLSN. They're not doing clipping volume and they're not doing OM246. And I would think it skews a little bit where the older generation already knows what works and they, they don't need to do these newfangled ideas. And I find it a little bit surprising that somebody of your generation, uh, is doing all of these things. And apparently you're doing it with great success and apparently <laughs> you're enjoying it. <laughs> if you're putting yeah. the clipping volume, but, but but you're also practical and you know, you have a, uh, agriculture background, um, and, and, uh, you know, that, that you do the clipping volume, you put that into greenkeeper app for easy display. And, and then you take the extra five minutes max, you know, you take the extra few minutes to keep it in your own spreadsheet. So you can check the mower operation. You, you seem to see some value in this. Um, and, and I think it's interesting that's that, that um, an experienced superintendent such as yourself does this. So c could you tell me a little bit about why you do this kind of stuff and maybe speculate about, um, whether other people might get some value from it or, um, or not, or, or why, why is only, let's say five or 10% of the, the greenkeeping fraternity or well, and sorority, the, uh, community, yeah. <laughs> the community of greenkeepers. Why, why, why are these type of techniques that you're getting good success with and, and you're, you're implementing them? Why, why isn't everybody doing it? That's a good question. I, I don't know if it's probably because, you know, everybody has a routine, you know, uh, and 
I assume that, you know, everything's, if everything's working well, why would you change where, you know, I guess my interest is, you know, you're spurring on, you know, Hey, you want to do clipping volume on three grains just for this little study I'm doing? Yeah, sure. Why not? It doesn't cause any pain. And yeah. And then it turns into, Oh, well, that's kind of valuable. And then, Oh yeah. I can see where this would fit in and, you know, kind of monitor a way to monitor what's going on in the golf course. And I guess I, I don't really understand why people don't do this. I mean, you know, the time constraint excuse is, uh, is just that I, I, like I said, there's, there's no difference if not less time, you know, there's no time to collect volume write it down, record it, you know, if you want to go on the deep end, like I do a little bit with on the uh, comparing equipment, uh, clipping volume, that's, that's another step. But, um, you know, and another thing is just trying to keep the brain stimulated, you know, it's, it's kind of like, in a way, it's like crossword puzzles, doing something to keep things going and entering numbers and looking at what's going on, you know, with the grass and, and growth and all that. Um, you know, it's just something interesting to, you know, that's how it starts is, you know, I'm interested in seeing what number gives us this result. And it's just kind of grown over time that, you know, trying to, you know, stay interested and in, uh, I don't know, I'll say cutting edge, but I guess it is in a way because there's so few that do it. And, um, and there's a lot of people I thought, you know, would do it that haven't, but you know, that's to each their own, I guess. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of different ways you can get results. Um, I, I just, I think especially like the OM246 and the clipping. Well, I, I think they're all the things that I've talked about, the, the uh, clipping volume OM246 and MLSN. I think I could make a strong argument for them being, um, just about the most efficient way that you could manage these very important things, which are the growth rate of the grass, the, the organic matter in the soil and the, the nutrients that are supplied in the fertilizer, they're all linked together. Um, and the, it, like at some point you have to make a decision about how much sand to put, and where that sand goes, does the sand go on top or does that sand need to go into the soil? And you mm -hmm. need to make decisions about, do we put more fertilizer or less and which elements, which nutrients need to be supplied? And I, I mean, if, if I wanted to have a debate or an argument or, or, uh, really try to argue my case, I, I guess I would end up, uh, making the argument that these particular methods that we've talked about, MLSN, clipping volume, and OM246, are the most efficient ways to manage these things that I am aware of at this time. So I guess that's kind of where I come from, where these are all things that I didn't do either. These are all things that um, that I, I didn't do MLSN until we started that in 2012. And uh, I didn't do clipping volume until a couple years after that. And then the OM246, not until four or five years ago. And I was kind of resistant to all of them too. And then, yeah, I, I guess it just takes a while for ideas to go mm -hmm. and get spread. 
Because I suppose you, how, how many people work at Chambers Bay with you? Uh, 20, that's total uh, on average. I mean, we have some part-timers in the summer, but typically it's around 20 total. And another thing going back a little bit, you know, with the data is, is really valuable, especially come championship time. And, you know, basically since I've been here, it's been championship, a couple years championship, then back to back years of championship and, you know, decision-making, especially when we're trying to get that consistency all through the golf course on greens, you know, we know, you know, in our two o'clock USGA meeting, this is this is where moisture is, firmness is, speed is, how much grass we're getting off the greens. And, you know, like I said, you know, for the four ball and you know, women's am, I mean, we were to the point where, you know, back when I worked at Pebble for the 2000 Open in Shinnecock, double mow in the morning, double mow in the afternoon. You know, it was just automatic. You know, there's no, it, that's just what we did. You know, it mm -hmm. kind of goes back to the, and the farming no analogy is, you know, what you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. But it, in a sense, it is broke consider you know we labor saving on you know mowing green why why mow when you're getting 0.02 liters you know off of a green that is unnecessary and you know and the other thing is, is there you know we uh at one point during the four ball championship on i believe it was a wednesday you know we had a couple no rain and we had a couple greens that were just you know six to eight inches off of the, the rest were just dialed in. I mean, very little variance. So we just mowed those greens only. And that was it. And, so, and you're able yeah. to detect that both with a stint meter and with a clipping volume? Yeah. Yeah. So so the greens yeah, that are... You know, moisture was dead even all the way across, you know, all the greens. They were all, you know, within a reasonable number and very little variance. So, you know, mow those... Uh, what was it, 14, 17, and 18. So, yeah, I think that, that's a good point that when you do have championships, having some of these data, um, whether for preparation or for during the actual week, um, it allows you to um, make the decisions with even more confidence that you're doing the right thing. And there's can be a lot of stress involved in those kind of championship events. So it's, it's useful to have that extra information to support to support your decision. So you're, you're mm -hmm. not guessing so much. And then, um, for the, for the high end clubs that do have tournaments or certainly have member events or something, it, it makes sense that the, you know, the, the member guests at a private club may be just as important for that club as, as a championship would be at Chambers Bay. And so it makes sense to also have that same information at your fingertips. And to be able to justify some of the work that you're doing, I know something that that has occurred to me. If maybe somebody mentioned this to me. I, I have a note about it that I'm going to blog about this uh, at some point. Is that um, maybe when I talk about clipping volume, I kind of suggest that you should try to grow the grass as little as possible. And when I talk about OM246, I talk about it in a way of uh, a way to really efficiently apply sand and maybe allow you to do less coring or 
allow you to put a little bit less in. And with MLSN, I talk about it sometimes about avoiding unnecessary fertilizer applications and stuff like that. But we can flip these around. If you have these numbers, you can find out if you're not growing the grass enough and you need to grow the grass more rapidly. And your OM246 is going to tell you if you're not putting enough sand, it's going to tell you. And it's going to tell you that you 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 are building up something that is organic material in the soil. But now, whether that's mat or thatch or whatever you want to call it, you're able to detect that it's accumulating and it's going up. It's higher than it was last year. And with MLSN, you can tell if you're not putting enough fertilizer or if you need to put more fertilizer. If your soil is really low in, in some elements, MLSN will tell you if you need to put more fertilizer. So uh, when I communicate about it, it's often about being efficient and, and, and I give the impression that all of these tools and techniques can allow you to do less, but they will also tell you when you need to do more. So uh, I think that's um, something that certainly from like, if you're at a private club or if you're at a club that's owned by a company or something and people are saying, we don't allow you to do this work, you know, we're, we're, we're not going to let you do coring this year or, or, you know, we watched this webinar or this seminar that Chris Tridabaugh did and they only top dress in, in the spring and autumn and we want to try that. Well, if you have this data, you can show this is not working at our course. We need, yeah. we need to do something different. We need to put more sand. We need to dry jack. We need to core aerify twice, you know, with this type of time spacing and so on. So, um, I, I think it's really useful, um, both the efficiency part, which is useful if you want to try to save money and identify all the efficiencies. If you're doing a championship and you want to have these data, if you have club events, if you need to do more work, it's useful in, in so many ways. And it's just, it's, it's hard to change. I think if, if you're not doing any of this stuff and you're already successful and then it's natural to be risk averse. Like, why would we change something if what we're already doing, uh, you know, it, it's already working, right? So, and, yeah. and it, at some point, if, if what you're doing is working and, and it's been working for 10 years or 20 years or 30 years, and it's a good system, then uh, I, I don't think I could ever convince anybody to change. But uh, it's it's fun talking with you, and we can talk about these things, and you know what the clipping volume numbers mean, and and we know what the OM two four six numbers mean, and and uh, and I'm glad that you're making use and and getting use of these kind of things. Yeah, it's interesting because I I guess a good way to put it is you know I like can you know if we're really good you know let's say it's ninety we're scoring ourselves at ninety two percent. Will doing this give us get us up to ninety five percent? You know, and yeah, okay. What was it cost to get that extra three percent? Um, well, it's uh, you're already dumping clipping somewhere. Why not put it in a bucket and get a number? And the big picture, you know, my five minutes per day uh, is kind of worth it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, 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 uh, it's good when you're trying to get better too, which is a common theme in this industry. Uh, and man, it's amazing how the, 
how there's just continual improvement in conditions and uh, just higher and higher standards, which we see that all around the world uh, with golf course maintenance and, and with sports turf maintenance. I watched some old uh, football, soccer uh, videos on YouTube, uh, especially around the World Cup, just watching some of the, the great players from the past and watching some of those highlights and stuff. And it's amazing some of the the transformations that have happened in sports turf also. Oh, yeah. Um, but but you watch old golf tournaments. Like I used to watch, uh, you know, golf in the 1980s and 1990s and thought those courses were immaculate. Well, you go back and watch some of those videos. <laughs> and they're, they're not as immaculate as, as I remembered back then. Yeah. So, yeah. So, so we've got a couple uh, comments and questions here in the chat. Uh, Randy asks um randy asks about potassium he said is there any visual signs that shows potassium deficiencies regardless of grass type and growing medium and that's a two-part question so i'll answer about potassium first what i expect to see with potassium deficiency um is the grass is going to grow a little bit slower so that's not quite a visual symptom because you typically wouldn't uh, pick that up unless you have a, a turf well supplied with potassium that you can compare it to but you could expect to see a little bit less growth um, let's see you um, you could expect the grass to wilt uh, from drought stress a little bit faster um, so the grass won't be able to control the stomata that that open to let carbon dioxide into the plant during the day. Um, they won't be able to control the stomata stomatal closure so well. So you would expect that a little bit more water can escape through the stomata. And as that happens, if the soil is not well supplied with water, then you could see a little bit more wilting in those potassium deficient plants. And whether it's because of that additional wilting or uh, something else, what I often notice on turf that's really low in potassium is you'll get a lot of um, leaves that, that look like they've wilted in the past. So, you, so you'll have turf that's, uh, you'll have some leaves that are green and some leaves that are um, senesced or, or straw colored um, and basically dying. Um, I've got a blog post that shows what this looks like on creeping bank grass um, from turf that had uh, from uh, soil that had four different levels of potassium in it. So one was well supplied and one had none. And it goes from dead grass to big bushy leaves. And, and there's kind of a gradient in between. But basically, you're asking a question about visual signs of potassium deficiency regardless of grass type and growing medium. And that is a tricky one to diagnose visually. Um, but, but the symptoms that you'd be looking out for would be less growth. You'd start to see more dead leaves. Uh, and so you'd still have green leaves, but I noticed that there's more dead leaves in potassium deficient turf. Like, like the old leaves die faster because the I think potassium gets translocated to the newer leaves. So the old leaves would be potassium deficient, I think. Uh, <laughs> and then uh, definitely you'd see more wilting. The second 
question that Randy asks is any thoughts on Dr. John Dempsey's research regarding phosphites as defense mechanisms activators? Um, and I think his research speaks for itself. It's done very carefully. And uh, there's no doubt that phosphites applied at the right time at the right rate uh, to the right type of turf um, for certain diseases it is going to um, either reduce the disease or offer almost complete control of the disease. Now, that's not going to be the case for every single disease, but phosphites uh, are definitely a, a useful tool in a disease management program. Eric, do you use phosphites at all? Yeah, we... Um... Typically, say March or April, we'll start out, and that's uh, you know every other week, depending on what surface fairways is monthly. Um, usually, package that with uh, our growth regulator app, so we can get you know, a little bit lower spray volume and get through the course. And then on grains, we'll do it every every two weeks with our regular package. So you're putting I mean, you're putting phosphide out regularly for yeah. for disease prevention purposes uh when and so something uh that's important about phosphide i think it works better as a prevention and not as a cure so that's why yeah. you're you're using it regularly yeah and our yeah and that's basically for pythium anthracnose and pink snow mold microdochium is that are yeah. those the three yeah. diseases typically we don't get a lot of pythium pressure, knock on wood. Um, anthracnose with POA is always, you know, right there, ready to rear its head if we get a little too stressy. But um, yeah, that's got to be a tough balance. Yeah. And, you know, we're trying to keep it dry and firm and all that. So we're, I don't want to say we're on the edge all the time, but we're looking at the edge. So they seem to help. I haven't tried anything where we, don't use it at this mm -hmm. point. Um, yeah, well, the, I think also um, Clint Maddox's research, I'm sure, showed that it worked. Um, I mean, it. I think it's it's a well known fact that's been demonstrated in many places that uh, phosphites can can uh, help manage disease symptoms or or disease activity for certain mm -hmm. diseases. Yeah, I think one thing we're going to look at this coming fall going into pink snow mold season on, well, especially fairways is, uh, you know, putting that in for the October, November, and possibly if we have an opportunity, December as well, throw that in the mix. Cost-wise, it's, you know, a little bit less than a uh, fungicide app, so Did you we'll see. Did you watch or listen to my conversation with uh, Doug Soldat about the testing yet? yet? <laughs> that was a that was a fun one. It's so Doug's done uh, a very interesting experiment in Madison, Wisconsin, on with creeping bent grass grown on a sand root zone, and he started off this experiment trying to see what potassium deficiency symptoms would look like, and that that's what the idea was with the experiment. And instead of seeing potassium deficiency symptoms, which now 12 years into the experiment, 
with no potassium added and clippings harvested, so the grass is mining potassium from the soil, he still hasn't seen potassium deficiency symptoms on those plots that don't receive potassium. But what he has noticed is the plots that do receive potassium, now this is on bent grass, but the, the plots that do receive potassium have more snow mold, and specifically pink snow mold, um, at, at least with the most recent pictures that he've, he's shown. Um, and the plots that don't receive potassium and haven't received potassium for 12 years have less snow mold. Now, whether this translates to uh, fine fescue or to poa annua is not, you, you, can't, you can't extrapolate from one grass type to the next for this particular effect. Although we could suspect that maybe it would be worth looking at, so that it would be for sure. it would be interesting um, to see what the effect of potassium is. So, then maybe that's something else you can play around with. Um, yeah. So Stevens Stevens got a good comment, uh, which has a lot of good uh, uh, advice. He's sixty three years old, and he's been in the business for over forty years. So more years than we have eric <laughs> and and he still tries new techniques if you're not attempting to advance you're falling behind always do what we've always done and we always get what we always got so that is is good advice i think for uh everybody in the business it's just yeah there, there's so many things that you could do right so it's like, yeah. like some things are good ideas some things are not and you don't have the time to do all of them so you just got to keep learning and then see what fits with your management style what fits with the staff that you have available what fits with the machines that you have and uh, choose the i also recommend to people don't change everything at once you know don't don't uh <laughs> you know don't try to implement everything all at once it's it's overwhelming and and it won't work but i, I like to make small changes and uh, running a golf course or a sports field or, or a park or any type, or, or, a, a, if you're in the lawn care business, I suppose you're, you're managing a set of properties. Uh, you know, there's, there's things that work and you know, it works and to just wholesale change everything and to do things in a completely different way. That's, that's not the way I would recommend it. Um, but I do think there are the, the best ways that we currently know how to do some things, uh, that's what I would be striving for, but I might not implement it all in one season. So I might change it 20. I, I always use the 20% number. I think changing things by 20% is enough that we could see a result and we could decide if it works or not. Like if, um, I, I think I recommended that to Joe Galati, the host of the Talking Greenkeeper podcast. We talked in December and he told me he'd done some OM246 and his results, he's like, I knew these were gonna be high. I knew the greens were gonna be, you know, really high in organic matter. And I think one of them was as high as 16% in the top two centimeters. And now the greens performing okay, but 16% is pretty high. So I said, you know, I've rarely measured cool season grass greens uh, that have organic material that's that high. So I would recommend doing getting more sand down. And uh, to get more sand down, um, you know, 
I think I recommended to him, try, why don't you try 20% more than you did before? <laughs> because, because to me, like if you do only 10%, you might not see a difference. 20%, I guess maybe we'll see a difference and you can see if that's working well. So yeah. that's, I mean, that's my advice that I give to a lot of people, I guess. By now we're past uh, middle age in this industry, Eric. So there's probably more people working that are younger than us than uh, people working that are older than us. Do you have any advice that you would like to offer to anybody who might be listening to this or, or watching it later? Um, uh, like go to work at three in the morning or, um, <laughs> you know. Well, I think I the big thing is, is just, uh like steve animated is you know don't be afraid to try new stuff and um you know put, play the long game you know i try not to be reactive as much as i you know it's a battle in that respect but in so you know a lot of times we always are somewhat reactive because you know weather and things out of our control but you gotta have a uh, you know, some kind of a long-term target or uh, plan or uh, anything like that. Just, you know, it's kind of like the ocean liner or the oil tanker in the ocean. You can't turn on a dime. It's just gradual, gradual adjustments and know where your next harbor is. Yeah. And, and I, excuse me, I think getting the growth rate right and like being really in control of the growth rate makes that a lot easier. I look back on my days as a golf course superintendent or my my few years as a golf course superintendent um, and the mistakes that I made were often uh, doing too much too fast. Um, whether that was rushing to get a fertilizer out um, when we weren't able to irrigate it in and then we burn the turf. Um, yeah. And then in retrospect, it's like, what why was I trying to do that? Why don't I wait until I could do it right? And uh, I've I've top dressed greens so heavily, uh, only one green, but it would top dress so heavy that we had to remove some of the sand from that green. And it's like, what? We can always put more sand later. So things like water, fertilizer, sand, you can always put more later. So, yeah. Um, but when I was younger, I would often try to do a knockout punch or something to the grass and, <laughs> and the grass doesn't really respond to that so well. And if it does, like if you try to do a knockout punch with fertilizer to really get the grass growing or something, then you have to uh, mow it so much. And then if a mower goes down or somebody doesn't show up and, and then you run into problems with even being able to cut it. And then you wish that you hadn't put that fertilizer. Those are the type of things that, that I made mistakes with when, um, I was just trying to do too much too fast. And what you mentioned about having a plan and the ocean liner and just, you know, make like, know where you're going. No, no, you may not, you're never, you're never where you want to be. And, uh, we're always trying to make things better and always trying to get things more consistent or, um, eliminate blemishes or reduce blemishes or whatever there. We're always trying to make it better or, or probably you you're not working in this industry um so uh it just i found it's effective to do what you said and kind of have that long-term goal and then um 
be reactive to the weather. So you're like being proactive in the sense of that long-term goal. And then you're in position to be reactive to weather or equipment breakdowns or unexpected disease outbreaks and, and that sort of thing. So I, I think reactive can be a good word um, because things change every day. So I've, uh, I've had some blog posts about that of uh, be reactive rather than proactive, but of course, Maybe adaptive is a better term than reactive. Yeah, maybe it, maybe adaptive is a better term. And uh, <laughs> maybe I will write that. I'll make a note of that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think you understand what I'm talking about, but I'm sure yeah. some people, some people, it probably just uh, rubs them the wrong way to, to hear that. Yeah. All right. Um, well, we've been going for two hours now. And we covered everything that I made a note of that I wanted to talk about. So if anybody has any questions or comments that you would like to make, if you're still with us in the live chat, that now would be a good time to uh, type those in and uh, we'll try to answer them. Otherwise, Eric, you've just rebuilt the or resurfaced the 15th green after a, a Christmas day. Or Christmas, Christmas week, Eve. Christmas, Christmas Eve. Eve irrigation break. Yeah, that's so. That green, I suppose, is uh, resodded and out of play now. Yes. Yeah. We uh, Monday. Uh, what was it? Last Monday. Yeah, last Monday we broke ground, got all the sod out of the way, took all the contaminated material out, and wrapped it up, uh, sodding on Thursday at noon. So now we're got it covered up in a blanket and wait and see and we'll probably pull it back tomorrow and see what's going on underneath uh hopefully everything's growing fine even Good. though it's so what's the target frozen. what's the target <laughs> opening date for that kind of uh project well forecast for february is colder than normal so not a lot of hope for growth there but we'll see um ideally it would be april or may we'll see I hate to give I hate to give a hard date because I I don't know what the weather is going to bring us, but uh, and we, we need to open it as quick as we can. Are you uh, do you have an extra hole somewhere, or are you using a temporary green? No, just seventeen holes right now. We're looking at uh, possibly putting in some kind of a temporary option on our one of our ranges, but uh, right now, being it's off season, people are understanding and uh, adapting to the to the 17 old golf course nice well i'm i'm looking forward to visiting sometime i my brother lives in the seattle area uh, or he, he lives in northwestern washington so i sometimes drive through the area or more often i fly into SeaTac, but i've recently been doing that when i'm on a bit of a rushed schedule or I'm with my family, and I thought that um, maybe a visit to Chambers Bay would not be the best family activity. Um, <laughs> but uh, one of these days, I'm going to get back to visit you again. I, th- I think I was there in 2014 for that uh, uh, Northwest Turfgrass Association conference, yep. and then again in 2015. And uh, since then, it's all been like pictures and remote and 
and some conversations and stuff. So I'm looking forward to visiting again and seeing how you're implementing a lot of these things. So yeah, let's see. So I'll put, uh, I'll put your contact information in the, uh, show notes. Well, I mean, I'll, I'll put your Twitter, um, all right. Well, we got a couple of questions. Nolan asks, how are you testing for MLSN and getting a minimal number to aim for? Well, I, I'm, I'm not aiming for a minimal number um, to answer. So I'm testing for MLSN based on, uh, we use a Malik 3 soil test but you can use some other types of soil tests and estimate what it would be on a Malik 3. But for Malik 3, that's how the MLSN guidelines were developed. So we've just got a number there that is a single number that is not a target that we're aiming for. It's just a number that I know that it's safe. So I have a high confidence that if there's at least that much in the soil, then the grass can get enough from the soil and we don't need to add it as fertilizer. But we're also dealing with living grass. And this is where the whole MLSN thing gets misunderstood by so many people because I think they have the historical, um, the way that we're all taught, the, the, the way that our minds have been conditioned to think about nutrition is that we have these target uh, nutrient levels in the soil or these optimum levels in the soil that we're trying to reach for. So, or we're trying to apply fertilizer to achieve these target levels or these optimum levels in the soil. I'm saying these optimum levels don't exist. What we should be worrying about is, is there enough? So this MLSN number is just a number and we're using it in a calculation. Our grass is alive because our grass is alive. It's using nutrients because our grass is alive and using nutrients we can estimate how much it grows. We can estimate how much it grows by uh, a simple way is by knowing how much nitrogen fertilizer is supplied. And if you want to get really advanced with it, you look at how much nitrogen fertilizer is supplied. You look at how much nitrogen is supplied in the irrigation water, if any, and you look at the predicted mineralization of nitrogen from the soil organic matter at your site. So from that, you get a total amount of nitrogen that the grass will be supplied with. And that gives you an estimated uh, growth. It gives you a maximum amount it can grow because if you put no nitrogen on the grass, eventually it will stop growing. Um, if, if it was supplied with no nitrogen from irrigation water, no nitrogen from mineralization, and no nitrogen from fertilizer, eventually the grass would completely stop growing. So you can look at that as being perfectly correlated with what the grass could grow. So based on that, you can then figure out how much phosphorus, potassium, and so on the grass will use. And based on that, on how much it uses, you can predict how the soil will change. So we use that MLSN number as a floor. And if, if, the, if the soil is going to drop below that MLSN minimum based on how much our grass is growing, then you're going to get a recommendation for phosphorus or potassium or whatever element would be dropping too low. So that is one way of explaining how MLSN works. And uh, it's all just a math problem and uh, a little bit of logic. 
Jason Haynes has a couple recent blog posts about how MLSM works in practice, and I think they're pretty good explanations to hear from a golf course superintendent um, rather than hearing from me, um, who I'm always just thinking about it as a math problem, which maybe is, is not the best way to explain it. Do you, do you have a, a deep understanding, Eric, of MLSN in which you could explain it uh, in a way that makes sense better than I just have tried to do it? I would think that, you know, you know, looking at the threshold number, you know, it's a low end threshold numbers, just, um, you know, a, if you're, you know, it's a hard to get a lot of granular fertilizers that are just straight and you always have a little bit of P or K in it, but why, why are you putting out K if you don't need it? Um, why are you putting out phosphorus if you don't need it? And then these numbers kind of guide you, you know, where, nah, I hate to say target, but I guess it is a target just, and, and, you know, you're just trying to maintain these numbers above that. Well, at least I am trying to keep them steady and above that threshold. And, you know, if you're putting out phosphorus or potassium right now with <laughs> market prices are not, uh, not very conducive to the budget. So, you know, that's another thing to consider if you're another math problem, I guess is a good way to put it. <laughs> that, that could be a, a difficult math problem. Um, yeah. The, yeah, I mean, basically MLSN will work. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Jason. Jason's just joining us. <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. Slept in today. Good. Well, you can catch two hours of conversation <laughs> at another time. Um, yeah. So Jason, I was just going to recommend your blog about explaining MLSN. Um, I guess another, another way, Nolan, that I would try to explain this is, um, with MLSN, we just have this single number that's a floor and that's not really the number that we're aiming for, but it, what that does is identify if the soil can probably supply enough without adding fertilizer um, or if we need to add fertilizer. So if, if you're way above MLSN in the soil, on the soil test, then we can expect that the soil can supply most of that particular element, whether it's potassium or whether it's phosphorus or whatever. And then we watch over time as that number goes down because the grass is using the nutrients from the soil because that's what grass roots are designed to do. And we know that minimum level, that MLSN minimum is a safe number. And we know that we can be below that too and still have good grass. But um, the way that we did that, we just looked at uh, a 10% threshold where 10% of the samples from good performing turf were low, lower than the MLSN. And we just said, why bother being in the bottom 10%? So that's how we came up with that single number. And then the math is just about uh, keeping above that number so it's yeah after you do it it's pretty simple but we throw away the concept that we all get taught um, which is why there's sometimes opposition to it because it doesn't make sense because nobody got taught this way that there are these optimum ranges in the soil for certain nutrients and that you should apply fertilizer to try to establish those levels in the soil but uh, 
that's not really the way it works in practice because for some elements you'll apply it year after year after year and you'll never reach that target and the grass condition won't change and then you realize whoa that was a complete waste and uh and that's what mlsn is when i talk about efficiency then mlsn is meant to minimize those kind of ineffective and unnecessary applications while still produce allowing us to have confidence that the grass is well supplied with nutrients all right any more any more chat questions or you guys can start saying goodbye <laughs> if you want to or <laughs> good morning <laughs> yeah this is yeah it's, it's awesome we get a global audience here so uh, we have people from all different time zones and uh i don't suppose there's anybody from new zealand or um hawaii um you know it's probably a little bit early in hawaii yet and it had been a little bit early in new zealand um but we did get people from the west coast east coast europe and asia so that's awesome thanks everybody for joining eric thank you so much for joining and thanks for the invite it's great i've i've wanted to talk about this for a long time with you and finally we were able to do this and this is kind of my idea with the office hours is it's the type of conversation that i want to have with somebody anyway but i expect that that type of conversation might be of interest to more people than just us and so i, I want to share these and make it available for people that want to hear some of these things so i i've now done i, I think this is the 12th atc office hours and it's been a mix of talking with uh, researchers and with golf course superintendents and uh yeah it's it's good I, I i'm looking forward to doing some more of these and the fun thing about doing the office hours is i make it a live stream where i have yeah. all of them so far i've made it a live stream so we get people that have questions and we can try to respond to those in real time and i enjoy doing that and um i'm i'm just i find it exciting uh that there's people that are interested in some of these ideas and and trying to implement them on turf all around the world and then we get feedback about what works and what doesn't and hopefully we can all learn from that and and do a little bit better and i can share information that's useful so yeah it's great i really enjoy watching these and participating today as well well cool thanks so much eric um for anybody that wants more information you can get that at asianturfgrass.com and i i am really going to sign off now so i'm going <laughs> to say thank you eric so much eric johnson the uh regional west region agronomist for kemper sports and is it kemper sports or kemper golf it's kemper sports kemper sports and the director of agronomy at chambers bay and uh i am micah woods the chief scientist at the asian turfgrass center and the director of the face turf information service and I thank everybody who joined us live. I'll sign off now for ATC from Yantakao, Thailand. I am Micah Woods. Bye-bye.